Uh, David, welcome uh, to our second conversation. Thank you. Uh, I, I enjoyed the first one. Uh, I'm sure many others will, and I, I hope you do as well. Gregory, Gregory of Nyssa, uh, the, the, um, the best kept secret of Christian theology in many circles. Um, and um, uh, in the first talk, we discussed on the making of humanity, and, and you also gave us a, a broad sweep introduction to, to Gregory uh, and the Cappadocians, why they were so important, but why Gregory in particular was the most innovative theologian of the Church Fathers. And um, now uh, we're going to devote this entire talk to a fairly short uh, treatise um, on the soul and the resurrection, uh, which you have said is your favourite work of Gregory's, which is high praise considering Gregory is pretty well your favourite theologian or up the top. Um, as you and I both know, it's short, but incredibly dense. It's, it's, um, uh, it's 100 pages. Could be, I mean, I've just reread them for the second or third time to try to get my head around it, but it's uh, inspirational and illuminating. And one of my goals would be that uh, many listeners uh, make the effort to uh, buy a copy and get into it. Get into it. Um, so that's, that's part of the purpose we've got. And as you know, in the third talk, um, we will get on to the very significant question of what, as I put it, why did the wrong guy win in the sense that Augustine... Uh, uh, I, I was, uh, let, me, let me interject this. Uh, on the Solon Resurrection is my favourite of the, uh, the dogmatic or theological treatises of Gregory. I should say that among the spiritual writings, the life of Moses um, would qualify as, as my favourite, just being precise. But. Well, 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 on another occasion, perhaps in the future, we could talk about the life of Moses, another great, very, very interesting book. Anyway, uh, let's get going. Um, and um, if, if I could ask you to give us some, you know, just for, for an audience who probably doesn't know much about Gregory, could you give the context of this book, um, its situation, um, and uh, its, you know, its major speakers and so on? Well, um, you know, Gregory was uh, the younger brother of Basil the Great, a very, not only a great theologian in his own right, but a very eminent man of the church uh, in Gregory's day. But he was also the younger brother of an extraordinary woman named Macrina. Um, the eastern part of the Roman Empire, uh, in the eastern part of the empire, uh, women had long enjoyed somewhat more prominent place in the intellectual world than they did in the Western half. But still, it was unusual. Uh, you know, it was still a, a late antiquity was was very much a culture of division of labor and women rarely entered into uh, uh, public debate on matters of any kind, theological included. So we don't always know much about the the, the great uh, women intellectuals of the patristic period. Macrina is an exception almost entirely because of this treatise. Um, she clearly, like all the Cappadocians, including uh, you know, Gregory of Nazianzus, including Basil, in a more muted way, at least in his public persona, Gregory, were all of the school of origin. That is, they, they were all um, you know, they practiced biblical exegesis of, of a certain kind. They, they understood the, the moral teachings of Christ in a certain way. They, they were theologically disposed towards, if not every aspect of origins, metaphysics, as they, or at least as, as they came to be understood later, at least overall to his vision of, uh, of the gospel. And I think Macrina really was uh, a, a greater influence on Gregory intellectually than Basil was. I mean, it, it, at least that's the impression you'd get from this dialogue. Obviously, um, it's, a, it's a fictional work in one sense, in that it's set up as a, a Socratic dialogue in the Platonic style. And, uh, you know, it's unlikely that it's... it's and there might be some 
material in it that's genuinely transcribed from a conversation. I mean, there might have been amanuenses present, but it's obviously stylized in a way that it's written as, as uh, you know, a well-formed, uh, very systematic discourse of an older teacher to a younger disciple. And, and this is interesting. And it's, it takes place on Macrina's deathbed. Basil had already passed away. Macrina was dying. Gregory would soon be on his own, which would lead to the, actually the most fruitful period of his intellectual life. And when he got out from under the shadow of his brother, who was something of a domineering character, um, he, uh, you know, he, his genius flourished. And uh, on the soul and resurrection, uh, written after Basil's death, after Macrina's death too, obviously. Um, it's interesting, in, in, you know, in any number of ways, just culturally, in that it's 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 a, it's something we have very little access to from late antiquity. Pictures of the intellectual life of of educated women uh, in in the late antique empire. It's it's um, it's an, it's an example of a Christian theologian borrowing a pl- the Platonic style, you know, a form of discourse that, that belonged to the golden age of pagan thought. It's also uh, a tribute, obviously, of love and admiration from a younger brother to a sister whom he clearly revered. You know, we talked last time about how uh, Gregory being the first uh, figure really in, in, well, in human history, <laughs> to have delivered uh, a, a denunciation of the institution of slavery as an institution, not simply as an abuse of power, not simply as something that that was an understandable reality of society that could be abused and therefore as a rebuke to those who, uh, who, who didn't uh, value their slaves and try to live with them in a more familial way. We have enough of that, not only from other Christian writers, but from Stoics. Uh, but Gregory actually wrote an Ecclesiastes sermon that, uh, that uh, attacked the institution itself as wrong in principle, as, as a violation of the dignity of the image of God in every person. And it's significant that, that we know that Macrina had prevailed on Gregory's mother uh, years before to manumit all her slaves, to set them free. And in fact, they created an intentional community, a kind of convent from the, the, the many of whose members had formerly been slaves of the household, but who chose to enter the order uh, um, when they were set free, when they were emancipated. So I, I think it's even possible that, that Gregory's special abhorrence of slavery was in part influenced by his sister. And uh, the the family seemed, seemed to be uh, relatively wealthy, but to use their wealth for social good. Um, they were. They, um, they were, I mean, if you read um, Basil, especially, you would see that they were, that by today's standards, they would be considered political radicals. And they used their wealth uh, to build hospitals, to manumit slaves. They, to create, as I said, in this intentional community. Uh, and these weren't just little gestures of patronage. I mean, they spent a family fortune doing good. And this isn't surprising because, as I say, if you read Basil's sermons on wealth and poverty, you realize that he, uh, again, by today's standards, it, it, it's the rhetoric. The rhetoric would be considered uh, radically communist. Uh, Alternatively, you could just say that it's radically Christian because all the all the rhetoric is taken uh, directly from Christ and 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 uh, the New Testament. But modern Christians tend not to like to acknowledge that. But here were the children of a very wealthy family, seriously committed to a life of of Christian charity, and who really did use their wealth with extravagant generosity uh, to create, well, I mean, I say hospitals, I mean, in a sense, Basil the Great was the father of the hospital. 
Uh, there were um, institutions before that in the pagan world, the Roman world, for the uh, repair, so to speak, of soldiers. But the uh, the free hospitals that, that Basil uh, uh, established and that would later flower throughout the East Syrian tradition, would East especially, were something pretty new. It was a, it was a new idea. And um, I, I, I hypothesize that the um, motivation for this uh, communism, for you know, for the, for this sense of um, liberality, generosity, the, the lack of the sense of ownership they had over their wealth, came from uh, putting it in colloquial terms, positive reasons, not negative reasons. In other words, it wasn't this kind of pietistic denial it was more it it wasn't it wasn't just private renunciation you see that's one of the things that distinguishes the ecclesiastes sermon of gregor it would have been perfectly normal i mean the people in constantinople and elsewhere and in the eastern world and the cappadocia had gotten used to preachers using the language of the gospel and all of its radical emphases and just ignoring it but it would have been perfectly normal for Gregory to deliver a sermon in which he said, um, you know, uh, you don't want to uh, wallow in luxuries. You shouldn't, you, you shouldn't cling to your wealth. You should set slaves free as a sort of uh, Lenten. I, I mean, the acknowledgement that it's a good thing to set slaves free. And also that, that Lent was the proper time for doing this because you would, you, you, you could, uh, arraign someone, you know, and 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 speak to his conscience and say, you know, you you you're living lavishly, including keeping many slaves when you don't need it. But Gregory's sermon obviously goes beyond that. I mean, it becomes a furious, rhetorically unprecedented attack on the very idea of slavery, of the kind that would not you would, you would not hear again for many centuries. Um, and uh, so, the, the you know what they did with their wealth wasn't just a matter of private renunciation. There was a kind of fierce sense of social justice that pervaded it. Uh, they were a remarkable family. They they clearly could have lived lives of comfort and ease. It was a very wealthy family, uh, and they were moved. Uh, not only, I mean, you know, Basil. You know, they all, be, all became bishops, not as benefices simply to be enjoyed as you know marks of social distinction, but out of it seems to me clearly a real commitment to the justice of the gospel, and they devoted themselves to the poor and the sick, and the enslaved, and you know, and so uh, Gregory comes from that line. What, what, what sets Gregory somewhat apart from the rest of it's just, as I say, in addition to that, in addition to the formidable theological gifts that he shared in common with his family, he also had a, a creative speculative mind of the highest order. Well, to that end, let's go to this book. And let me just ask you a simple question. First of all, David, why do you like it so much? Why is it so important? And well, I mean, you know, much of the, the dialogue is just, ba- in a sense, is based on philosophical and even scientific principles that are outdated. I mean, you know, so, you know, how, how does the soul, when it's raised, resume the original matter of the body it had in a glorified form? And, and it's in debate with pagan skeptics who would say that the resurrection is an irrational doctrine. Uh, and that's interesting more historically than anything else. It's actually only a small portion of, of the treatise as a whole that, that, that uh, has the kind of radiant quality of something that, that never ceases to be relevant in discussing uh, 1 Corinthians 15 principally. That's where you see the, uh, the influence of Origen. I mean, Origen, that was Origen's favorite chapter of scripture. And it is the most remarkable chapter in the New Testament in many ways. I mean, in a sense, everything is there. It it includes 
probably the most historically reliable accounts of the reports of the resurrection, written long before the Gospels and with none of the obvious embellishments you get in the Gospel accounts. It provides a metaphysics of resurrection that situates Paul very much in the period of late antiquity. And by the way, also uh, a metaphysics that most of Christian history has failed to take it's completely missed somehow, you know, because of the terms of the time uh, shifted. And then lays out this vision of all of creation, not only fully uh, subordinated to and reconciled to God, but one in which God himself becomes all in all, and it's that in all that, that to Gregory is especially significant. And it, and it yields in this treatise this wonderful picture of, of, of the eschatological reading, and, and I think it, the most coherent, if you believe that all the texts of the New Testament should you try to you should try to reconcile them with one another. I don't necessarily believe that one must. I'm just saying in the fourth century, uh, if you were trying to do that, Gregory succeeds in doing it in the way that say Augustine didn't. Augustine has to explain away hosts of verses, whereas Gregory has to explain away nothing. And what emerges is a picture of a kind of, uh, of two eschatological horizons, one in which is the, uh, the judgment on history. Uh, and he sees this as being right there in Paul. He's not imposing it on the text. He sees, first, the history arrives at its consummation. And there is a real uh, parting of the ways of the righteous, the unrighteous, the somewhat righteous, the very righteous. But the, the story's not over because he, he believes it implicit in Paul and explicit in 1 Corinthians 15 is the vision of then what what the full consummation of reality is. It's, it's verse 28, is it? Um, I'm trying to remember. I was, Sorry, as I told you at the beginning, we're, we're in pollen season here, so I'm I'm, I'm drunk with the, with the, with the glory of the flowers. Good, good. That's 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 a that's a, that's a good uh, uh, opiate for talking about one Corinthians fifteen. Keep going. Good lonely as a cloud that floats on high. <laughs> All at once I came upon golden daffodils. All right, um, so. Uh, to me, it's just the most wonderful um, of any eschatological treatise uh, of the fourth century or after, really, in, in, in laying out this glorious vision of the final progress of all creation, which he symbolically describes in terms of the temple in Jerusalem, how at first there different difference, you know, those outside the temple, those in the forecourt, those within the temple walls, those who can draw near to the sanctuary, and even then there's the Holy of Holies, which is reserved for the final, and how in the age, uh, through the grace of God, all ultimately are brought into union, and and ultimately are able at last to raise the, you know, the great chorus of uh, you know, every knee shall bow and all that. And if you unite this treatise to the one we were discussing, are, are you looking around for a New Testament? Uh, I'm looking around for an Old Testament, uh, actually, because um, let me just pause uh, the recording for a moment uh, while I go get one. Right, yes, it was, by the way, First Corinthians 15, 28. My mind hasn't gone quite that off the rails. Yeah. So... When all you know, it, it's it's the, that uh, that famous image put on the hypothesis of Totopanto. You know, when when all things have been placed under him, arranged under him, uh, subjected, if you like, uh, the, then the sun will place all things uh, under. You know, well, anyway, uh, it's the all in all passage. God becoming. Uh, to Panta and Pasim. And that was the favorite verse of origin. And uh, Gregory, I think, uh, Macrina at least, but Gregory follows origin in that. And the whole of uh, 
of the treatise, in a sense, culminates in explaining what that vision means and what what it would mean to say that God is not only overall and uh, God is not only um, uh, praised by all, but that God is himself the all that is in all, uh, in, in all things, yeah. So, uh, and, and again, you do have to, clearly, I want to say this quickly, you do really have, to, the two treatises we've been discussing really do have to be held together. In a sense, um, one of the reasons Gregory has been underestimated or ignored uh, in much of Christian history, much of Western Christian history, is that though he was an intensely systematic theologian, a systematic thinker, uh, he didn't sit down to write a, a system in the you know the Hegelian sense or a set of. Uh, uh, critiques as Kant did or systematic theology even the way modern theologians did the various facets of this, this system uh, come into view in different treatises in different contexts when you know a treatise on creation, a treatise on eschatology when they when you bring them together they cast a tremendous light on one another um, and then his spiritual treatises on what the union with God is like, how it consists in the sort of infinite relationship of ever greater love and ever desire, ever greater gratification. Uh, and then other principles that, from his polemical treatises against the Edomians. So Gregory, uh, and, and, and like, unlike Augustine, uh, he, he did, again, uh, who did write systematic treatments of specific topics at great length, uh, Gregory r requires you to do the piecing together for him. He, he didn't, um, of all the dogmatic works he produced, though, this is the one that's made, sort of explains the whole project, and very concisely in the last last few pages. Yes, and, and just for the benefit of uh, listeners who would not be familiar with the book, uh, David, you've been talking about the last chapter, chapter 10, um, which is not more. Uh, the, the, the treatise doesn't actually have chapters, but I, I take it you've been reading the Saint Vladimir. Okay, all right. Seminary Press. Um, yeah, you mentioned chapter ten in in your um in my your email, and I had to go hunt this up to find out. Yeah, I'd forgotten it's divided in chapters. The Greek text is just a continuous dialogue, like a platonic. The very last bit, which might be you know, or ten pages at most. Right. Um, and um, I, I'd like to, to, to just pursue this because, as you say, this vision is some kind of crystallisation of the entire gospel. Um, and uh, it is, and as you also say, I mean, I, I want to quote something you said um, about these two books, uh, which is uh, the following. In the end of all things is their beginning, and only from the perspective of the end can one know what they are, why they have been made, and who the God is that has called them forth from nothingness. There is no profounder meditation on the meaning of creation than Gregory's on the soul and resurrection, and no more brilliantly realised eschatological vision than his on the making of humanity. As I read it, the words that were actually running through my mind were T.S. Eliot from the four quartets in my beginning is my end. And it is as if in order to understand the project of the gospel, Gregory's mind goes uh, to the beginning and in the beginning, he finds the seed of the end and to the end, uh, which is the flourishing of the beginning so that one can't pull them apart. Although even then, um, that's from the perspective of time, you know, the seed uh, of flourishing in, in the uh, in its consummation in a sense though from the from the perspective of eternity the end comes first uh, and the beginning comes last if you think about it. you know that, that that notion of if you remember from our last conversation that the true humanity in the divine image perfected in the divine likeness and union with God uh, is the, is the man of the first creation account, uh, Genesis one, and this is a this is uh, all human beings throughout all time united in spiritual harmony, 
in their rational nature with Christ as their head, deified in God. This is the true creation. Until that reality comes to pass, creation has not yet happened in a sense. And in God's eternity, that is the, crea- the reality that God from, from everlasting has made to be. In time, it's the end of our temporal course. In eternity, it's the very foundation of our existence. Uh, it, 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 very interesting, as I listen to you, um, David, um, in the work that uh, I used to do around creating vision one of the, uh, for corporations, one of the things I wanted to uh, disagree with and put aside was this concept of problem solving. Um, you know, people just looked at a situation as full of problems that we need to get rid of to return to a status quo. And we, uh, in, in a model we developed of strategic visioning called the ABCD model, I began to realise that when anyone is visionary, the situation is not so much problematic as one of frustrated purpose. Uh, you know, there is a purpose that's here, but it's somehow being diminished and lost. And the recovery of that purpose is actually the vision, which uh, in very simple human terms, because I think we're obviously walking in the footsteps of God, is what what I hear you say in creation. At the beginning, God had this perfected purpose, which we could thus see the unravelling as an unravelling of purpose and the redemption as as a recovery of purpose, such that the creation is only finally created at the end of that's what I heard you saying. Well, yeah, and, and, and of course, being that it's a divine creation, that, that purpose isn't simply a, a goal to be achieved. It's, it's a reality uh, that rests upon the divine nature uh, in eternity. And, and um, one of the things, I mean, I know the earlier chapters of the book are framed in a rather quaint, outdated debate with um, you know third and fourth century philosophies, but nonetheless, I even then you get you, you realize that that Gregory and Macrina and Basil had a very interesting approach in other ways. I mean, that you do get again a, a reprise of that suggestion that physical bodies are a coalescence of qualitative uh, attributes rather than an actual, you know, property subsisting in a substrate. So, I mean, the, 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 there's still a touch of the metaphysical creativity there. So, you know, even then the matter that's being resumed by the soul and resurrection, uh, is a matter that, 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 that simply has sort of the accidental association with, well, not accidental, but the association with the soul of this life, but it's not, it's not a, a kind of, um, Abs- you know, uh, uh, material substrate in the way that others might think. It, it, it simply means, you know, they're anxious and in this discussion, you know, whether or not the resurrection reintegrates the whole human being who was. Not, not, it's not simply a question of, you know, you got, you've, he's got the right atoms in the right places because they're not really atomists in that sense. Uh-huh. And- I mean, I mean, I thought uh, I, one of the mesmerized. He uses analogy a lot, of course, to develop his arguments. And um, I, one of the analogies that seems to break away from, I mean, I think a lot of us try when we think of the soul, we're sort of still ontologizing the soul as some other kind of spatial element that lives inside a bodily element. Yeah. He, of course, repeats that. Um, but it, the image that struck me, he very often uses images of art, painters, yeah. uh, um, and, and obviously he uses that imagery to apply to the divine creator, but also to us, uh, where yeah. he seems to say that, I mean, the analogy uh, uh, was a very unusual one, but I thought brilliant that a, a painter will take a palette of colours and mould them into a beautiful form um, and that those elements on the palette are like the physical elements of the soul, but the concept in the mind of the painter is the soul. <laughs> uh, and I found that a, a, a brilliant paradigm shift. In yeah, I mean, it, it's picking up on and developing, you know, uh, basically Aristotelian understanding of psyche or soul. 
uh, as the, the form of life that something is. You know, it's the principle of life. It's the form of the body. Uh, but then, of course, this it, 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 it's also, in a sense, uh, itself the, the artistic concept, the artistic uh, 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 actus or energia that, that, that composes the body. You know, so that the, 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 there's a kind of uh, artistry. It's not, and you're right; he's not talking just about the divine artist. It's talking also uh, of the participatory artistry of the soul itself. As and and one of the interesting things about and the, again, this Swaraj, you know, but the, the body resuming its elements, its attributes, its qualitative attributes. Uh, in a sense, he speaks of the resurrection as the soul reconstituting itself. You know, it's not. Um, it's it, almost like the resurrection is the final uh, work of art that uh, brings all the elements. You know, it, in a sense, it's continuous with the spiritual life in which one is perfecting the image of God in oneself, so that yeah, in the resurrection, with the, the dross of fallenness and mortality and matter in the bat, he uses matter in this sort of ambiguous sense. In that sense, is gone. Uh, the soul uh, now has, you know, achieved the purity of the divine image and, and can compose itself and its elements with perfect harmony. And uh, that, as you said, I like, I love what you said actually. That his concept of the resurrection is not some kind of geogra- geographical um, transportation to another place. It, right. Continue, it's, a, it's a continuation of our own and Pico like you know designing our own souls um, um, and this uh, grades right through into into the resurrection and um, of course this gives him a, I, I, I notice an enormously rich picture of growth um, you know sanctification um, I, I just thought I'd read out because you would be familiar with it, but your readers wouldn't. I think this is from chapter seven when he talks about this infinite growth. He says our rational nature came to birth for this purpose so that the wealth of divine good things might not be idle. A kind of vessels and voluntary receptacles for souls were fashioned by the wisdom which constructed the universe in order that there should be a container to receive good things, a container which would always become larger with the addition of what would be poured into it. For the participation in the divine good is such that it makes anyone into whom it enters greater and more receptive. Right. Just an enormous picture of uh, infinite enlargement, um, yeah. and, uh, and uh, which covers both this life and the resurrection, but it, with a continuity between them. Yeah, as I say, this is one of the distinctive features of, of Gregory's usage, which would be picked up again by Maximus, the confessor. That, um, and it's been mischaracterized at times by people who don't pay attention to his language. Um, there was a, a famous book written, I think, in the 50s, if I remember, uh, arguing that Gregory is the, the, the first... Um, thinker of antiquity to have a positive understanding of the infinite or a taught appear on by uh, um, uh, Eckhart Muhlenberg. It was called the Unendlichkeit Gottes by Gregor von Nyssa. The problem is that, um, well, first of all, I mean, the, 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 it's, it's not entirely clear because there are places in Plotinus where taught appear on is not used uh, as um, meaning just indeterminacy, where there seems to be a positive concept of the infinite. But in Gregory, this be, becomes uh, a much more fertile category. But, but with Muhlenberg, he being a Lutheran, he, he, he sort of leaves out the deification aspect of it. It becomes uh, this, this uh, it, what you would think would actually be a kind of eternal torment, this endless sort of asymptotic approach towards God as a discrete object that he'll never reach. But of course, Gregory's language is, and part of this, of course, is in Greek, the uh, um, 
the, the, the preposition east can mean in or into or, you know, or towards even at times. So, but for Gregory, it's clear that this is a growth into God. And that, and that's why you that, that image of the vessel that expands as it's filled has to be taken very seriously. It's not that Gregory's running after an object, you know, imagines the soul is pursuing an object it will never reach just by remaining steadfast in virtue. That, that's the eternity that awaits in the sort of moral relation with God. It is a direct transfiguring divinization, which, in, which is infinite in scope. And since we're finite, immutable creatures, you can describe this in terms of an everlasting epictesis or stretching out that nonetheless is not a lack. It's not the experience of a lack. It's not even burdened by memory. You might notice in this treatise, he also says, it's, it's, it, you know, it's not driven uh, by, by the past in the way an imperfect desire would be, which would be burdened with uh, regrets or uh, uh, things unachieved. Rather, it's like a pure state of futurity in which the past is always being assumed into a greater present, which is itself... Uh, an openness to to an infinite future of just ever greater fulfillment. It's unimaginable, obviously, in human terms, but it, it, it's, it's meant, I mean, he's quite clear that what he's talking about is not a sort of infinite frustration. He's simply talking about, how, you know, understanding how the life of, of a creature in direct union with the infinite God uh, is not in fact, frustrated by the transcendence of the divine or the infinite disproportion between the infinite and the finite. But in fact, that very distinction, that very disproportion becomes the terms of an ever more intimate union. And this is a new thought. I mean, it really is. We don't, we, no one else before him in the philosophical or religious traditions, you know, not even uh, the most brilliant of, of Platonic philosophers had really thought about this with quite the same, uh, you know, with quite the, the same originality. Again, Plotinus adumbrates many of these themes, but McGregory is is the first, I think, to take it into uh, develop a sort of uh, actual metaphysics of the infinite and the finite in union. Yes, and, and that makes our ordinary little lives here um, rather inspired and illuminated. Yeah, because, I mean, you know, for Gregory, it begins, it's not, it's funny, actually, I was talking about his spiritual treatises. When you read the life of Moses or his commentaries on the Psalms of David or other, of his, or his commentary on the Song of Songs, you can often, one of the things you notice about Gregory is quite often you're not sure where death is. In, I mean, <laughs> death is just one of those, you know, it, it doesn't really interrupt anything. So quite often the spiritual life just keeps going. You know, he's talking about the ascent of God. It could start as Moses in this life, standing uh, steadfast in the good, not being moved either to one side or the other, but only upward into, into God by the and then, uh, you know, as the exposition proceeds, we can be talking about uh, you know, soul in the kingdom of God or, you know, uh, it, it, for him, it's a continuum. You know, we, be, we begin in this life. He, he had a particular fondness for the image of, of the mirror, and again, drawn from all. Now we see as in a mirror, you know, uh, dimly or in an, in an enigma. But... It, he he take and, and, you know that that whole passage, which also yields the uh, the, the image of a pectusist stretching out for that which it lies ahead. He takes that image of the mirror as 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 being uh, an image of what we are, you know, as spirits that uh, we see dimly because of the mirror of the soul, that which is the only place where uh, God can be seen by finite eyes is in the soul as it's progressively purified by the Spirit. So the light of the Holy Spirit, so the light of the human spirit, is conducted uh, into the height of mind by seeing the image of Christ ever more fully in the mirror of the soul. So we see God by seeing, uh, uh, seeing him mirrored in our own transformation into God. Yes, um, 
it's, yeah, it's ex- exquisitely beautiful imagery the way he, he lays it out. And, 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 and I must say, and just an obvious thing, um, he makes poetic. I mean, part of the challenge of talking about the resurrection and the infinite is that, uh, in the immortal words of T.S. Eliot, you know, uh, uh, poetry is, is a raid on the inarticulate. And, right. and But Gregory raids the inarticulate particularly successfully. He has great poetic gifts of analogy um, to describe ineffable things. Yeah, and he, um, and he borrows the imagery from scripture in a creative way. He, do, he doesn't assume that, it, that the metaphor ends... Uh, with a simple sort of parallelism, you know, he takes that image of the mirror, not simply as an image of obscurity, but as a but but as a kind of clue to what it's like to see God uh, for a creature. And uh, in the in the Song of Songs commentary, I mean, obviously, has all the rich imagery of of the Song of Songs to work with, and what he does with you know, the dove, the alighting of the dove, or with the, the, the arrow that appears, you know, I mean, it's um, uh, in part he's just a natural sort of Hellenistic child of a ancient tradition uh, as much pagan as it is Jewish and Christian of allegorization, but I, I agree with you he does it with this sort of wonderful, at times almost romantic uh uh, richness, you know, or it, it, all, it reminds me actually sometimes of some of the great Persian Muslim poets like Hafiz and Mumi, you know, it's uh, the same that, that the, the imagery has to carry a lot of the speculative content because the speculative content by itself uh, illuminates less than the actual metaphors do. Yeah, no. I, I think we sh- I should re- restrain uh, us from talking about metaphor. That would be very interesting. Um, but uh, well, that's, a, that's a long, that's a long uh, discussion. Um, it, as an example, if I could go back to where we um, we didn't begin, but you were talking about this final section of the book on the resurrection, and you you mentioned in passing terms this image he takes and. And I think um, let's just make it clear for people that he takes the image from Psalm 118 of the Feast of the Tabernacles. Right. And it's only mentioned, uh, the actual verse uh, uh, to read it out at the end of Psalm 118 uh, um, is, the Lord is God and he has made his light shine upon us with bows in hand, join in the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. Right. And, and that image of which, of course, is, is the, the Feast of the Tabernacles as they move up into the temple is the image you uh, were referring to that he takes as the end of all things when the elect, far from being chosen instead of everybody else, are chosen before everybody else to invite all, as, it, as the language does here, to join in the festival procession. Right. And th- there's evidence right there that Gregory is a better reader of Paul than uh, Augustine is. Because uh, for all of his genius, Augustine, of course, makes the elect uh, convertible with the number of the saved. But Paul clearly doesn't. I mean, in in Romans 11, it's clear that the elect um, are those who have not stumbled. And yet Paul goes on to say that those who have stumbled will not be allowed to fall. It's clear that the very notion of those who have been called is not in this world is not for Paul uh, has nothing to do with the ultimate number of the redeemed. He's speaking specifically of those who, in the inexplic for Paul at first seemingly inexplicable way of God's providence, even those you know in some cases Gentiles who by nature have no right to expect priority at all uh, have accepted Jesus and some Jews haven't and how is this going to work out with God's faithfulness to his people Um, Gregory never makes that mistake of confusing uh, the the number of the elect with the number of the saved because he clearly uh, you know simply reads Paul better 
than Augustine does. Of course, everyone read Paul better than Augustine did, to be honest. I mean, Augustine, for all of his genius, made such a hash of Paul that uh, much of the Christian world still hasn't recovered from the catastrophe he precipitated. Yes, we'll get on to that next week um, and or next next talk. Uh, but there's uh, there's so many fruitful areas I'd like to go. I know our time is relatively short. Um, let me take you back, if I could, to the first part of his treatise. Uh, I know that it might be a bit quaint, but I must say, I thought in the first two sections or chapters, as I read them, on you know the soul and his argument that the soul is transcendent. Uh, Am I wrong to, as I read uh, his uh, rebuttal of people who thought uh, life is just a material, just a set of materials, that's all it is, um, and he argues against that, I, I, I thought he, it was a very, very modern set of um, antagonists he had. They did remind me. Oh, well, I mean, this is one of the wonderful things about the genius of Greek culture is that every possibility got explored. So, uh, you know, there, there are no new arguments. I mean, um, maybe Cartesian dualism was something new, although you often see it ascribed to Plato. It's not, not exactly right. But even there, um, you have something, you, 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 you know, you have something like the same dualism. But yeah, you had materialists, you had people, the severest skeptics. There were others who had a metaphysics that, that wasn't materialist by today's standards necessarily, like the Stoics, but nonetheless, were not physicalist, but nonetheless was, you know, uh, rigidly monistic. And, 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 yeah, so you'll find him arguing not only with people of his time, but with positions that we still have today. There's no question. And part of it is... You know, if you look at there in Nietzsche, I, I mean, I'd have to go back to the text after it's been a few years since I've read those chapters. But, you know, in Nietzsche, there's also an argument against the notion of the emergence of, of uh, rational nature from purely material elements. And, um, you know, and uh, uh, actually, I mean, I find, you know, I'm writing a book on philosophy of mind. It's one of my topics and not necessarily there but in 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 other aspects of gregory's thought i've found material that's still wonderfully relevant to constructing a phenomenology of what the mind does um you know we think and correctly so that that a phenomenology of conscious states really didn't enter of the Western philosophical canon in the way we think now until the time of Franz Brentano. And that reminds me, you know, Brentano, rereading it now, of psychology from an empirical standpoint. But actually, uh, the uh, discussions in Gregory about um, the way desire functions and the way thought, thought and desire, and, and many. Uh, the way, precisely because of his theology of Epictetus, the way he deals with what would be called the intellectualist tradition of, of free will, uh, he is a very cogent and, and, and uh, powerful observations on what we do when we think, you know, what we do when we desire, what we do when we act, that, that you look back at them from the from uh, the set of modern questions we have, and it's remarkably uh, it's remarkably relevant still. There are so many choice um, sentences from this book, um, but uh, I won't go there because I would like to finish uh, by um, you just taking us through the fact that he has this blessed vision of the end of all things, which we've talked a lot about. But, but obviously to make that vision coherent, <coughs> he has to cover um, issues such as the notion of evil, um, the notion of the purification of the soul, uh, the notion of judgment, um, uh, the notion of desires, um, which you, you would know he does um, superbly, but he's doing them all uh, by subordinating them to the end of, of 
purification and participation. I mean, the, you might mention for people, for instance, is his handling of so-called judgment with the, the rope metaphor being the famous one, one of the famous ones. Um, would you like to comment on that? Right. I, I, well, I will say again, of course, he starts from the conviction that the only possible real existence of a fulfilled humanity is a full humanity created in the image and likeness of God in the totality of all human natures in union. And that this is a free act of ascent too of the creature to God from the very first moment of its existence. So, you know, from the beginning, creation is based on salvation. That is, if we weren't always already from the perspective of eternity saved and united to God, creation couldn't exist. If we had several hours, we could go into the logic of that, but I actually think it's correct. But that means that, that like Origen, the quest before him, he's taking 1 Corinthians 15 as a total picture of the gospel. Does it uh, unite all the different witnesses of the New Testament or of Scripture in a way that's coherent and tends towards this final picture, or at least is not repugnant to it? Now, again, as I said, Augustine failed. I mean, you know, you could say what you like, but I mean, so much of Augustine is explaining away the explicit meaning of, of certain verses to make them conform to a much more parsimonious view of salvation. With Gregory, he doesn't have to do that. I mean, Gregory has hell, like origin there, uh, and he sees in it this, this, this glorious process of purification, which, unpleasant though it may be for, for some, ultimately is, is part of that same refining spiritual power of the spirit which draws all things to God and as you say the image he uses of a rope is the, the way you would uh, take clay or mud off of a rope and, uh, is you, or a halter would be to run it through a sort of uh, a, a, a sort of circular scraping device sometimes you hook it to the back of a horse because you'd have to be pretty strong to pull it through and just strip you know just strip the clay off the rope and this is you know, the, for the gross material, again, material used in the appropriate sense of, of the flesh that kills or of, uh, matter that is corrupted, you know. And this is stripped away so that the true spiritual nature uh, of the soul is set free from the history of sin and death. And that uh, for Gregory, you know, he's able to unite this, this picture, the, the, the very notion of judgment. Uh, is the judgment of the good physician, as he says, you know, that, that uh, punishment's not punitive in the, in the sense of retributive, it wouldn't be because the, this would not be in keeping with the nature of, of God's goodness, but is in fact for the repair, restoration, and salvation of souls. And, you know, I may, I, and, and that so therefore the, the, the fires of hell are the love of God, chastening, perfecting, purifying, and liberating the soul from its own self-created prison until all together can approach the horns of the altar as one, that the great, you know, the great procession of all, and he says of all spirit, all noetic natures. I mean, he's quite clear to a degree that even Origen wasn't, no one else was, that he means also all fallen spirits, uh, the Eratio Catechetica. I, it's, you know, it's funny, you know, for, for a father who's commemorated as the pillar of orthodoxy in later tradition, he's actually bolder than many figures who, who either were condemned or left out of the, uh, of the calendar of saints. You know, he says in the Eratio Catechetica, the devil may repine at having been uh, fooled into inviting the conqueror into his kingdom, you know, he talks about the divinity of Christ being like a fish hook, and that uh, one catch the devil, right, uh, is like the hook in the fish that the devil swallowed like a greedy uh, shark. But then he says, but this too will redound to the benefit of the devil, you know. So uh, this is a total universalism of the boldest sort, uh, and. Yeah, yeah, it's the same. 
What I think is very, very interesting is... You see, that, let me just, before you say that, let me just uh, observe before I forget it, is that, in a sense, Gregory is an embarrassment to those who want to insist on the indefectibility of tradition and the absolute necessity of belief in eternal damnation, because here he is, there is no father in the tradition who wears titles of greater eminence. Pillar of orthodoxy is a conciliar name given to him, okay? And yet explicitly, systematically, relentlessly, he is the most uh, unapologetic, total universalist in Christian tradition. People will try to pluck a verse here or a ver- you know a phrase there out of his work, out of context, and say, "Well, so it's not clear." You know, it's nonsense. I mean, it's just openly, absolutely. You can see that as an embarrassment. You can see it as a mistake. I like to think of it as providence. That you know, uh, God has say fixed in the calendar of saints uh, a figure whose universalism couldn't be, couldn't possibly be more systematic, more explicit, and more biblically coherent. Yeah, powerful, powerful. And uh, what I was going to say, David, is that um, uh, there's a great irony here. I mean, one can look at issues like judgment, punishment from one of two angles, uh, from the human centre, from the human up or from God down. Um, And since he has such a all-pervasive view of the standard to which we are called to be as God, it necessitates a great deal of purification and judgment to get there. Um, uh, It reminds me of um, Henry IV, Um, you know, uh, where Prince Hal... uh, is in the first half of the play, mucking around, getting drunk with Falstaff, because he has no sense of his role in life. Halfway through the play, uh, you know, the the, the political situation changes, and lo and behold, he has to come and rescue the kingdom and his father. Once he realises he's a prince, he repents. (laughs) And it's almost as if... um, Mind you, that's a heartbreaking moment, (laughs) you know. Because we lose Falstaff. Well, poor Falstaff. I mean, you know, you can't not love the man. But yes, okay. But go on. I, I get, I get, I get the comparison. Yeah, I know, I know. Anyway, but leaving that aside, this, this, you know, I, I kind of think of myself as a Falstaff in many ways. Uh, I wasn't going to mention it, David, but the thought did fleet across my mind. Um, uh, particularly his uh, Falstaff's unparalleled ability for. Um, Vituperative uh, abuse of his opponents. I, I thought surely he, he, he that, that dialectical tradition. Well, thank you. That's, uh, that's very flattering. <laughs> I thought you'd like it. <laughs> um, uh, I was asked by David Artman yesterday when he interviewed me. You know what I liked about you, and I'm sorry to say the first thing I said was, "Well, well David is funny," um, and I bet meant that Falstaffian irony um, uh, that's uh, that's uh, diverting. But um, I, I, I actually, I, I, as a matter of fact, actually do take that as high praise. I, uh, the, um, I uh, find most theology incredibly boring anyway. So, so you know. oh, well, it was, it was hard. my comment was sincere. Um, but I think the, just to finish off, this picture of um, glory, the, 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 the coherence of the picture of glory can't admit compromise. It can't admit um, some kind of suburb called hell. It can't admit anything like that. But it, in turn, since the calling is so high, um, you know, when I was a teacher, I reserved my harshest criticism for the brightest students. The students that were struggling, I was much more careful about because their yeah. confidence was so fragile. But the brighter the tougher I was. And that's kind of like if God is our teacher... The calling is so high, therefore, the purification and growth is uh, very responsible, including this idea of judgment. Um, well, uh, there's much more we could say about this uh, wondrous book, um, but I think I really appreciate uh, the the justice you've done to it, David, um, and I hope that uh, many people will start to uh, consider Gregory. Um, 
Uh, thanks for your time. We look forward to talking I, one more time. I would, say, I would point out that, sorry, the actual title is, he's called the Pillar of Orthodoxy, but the conciliar title, now that I think about it, was actually Father of Fathers. The Father of Fathers. Mm. Yeah, Patron. So, uh, I, uh, I chose the reverence with which he was uh, uh, considered by his uh, peers. Okay, David, well, um, God bless you, and we'll talk again soon. Yes, well, thank you very much. I enjoyed it. It went quickly, actually, so that's a good sign. Okay, bye-bye. Bye.